Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today I'm chatting with an award-winning writer-director whose 2013 Sundance film Pit Stop brought him a lot of acclaim but whose 2018 film titled 1985 with Corey Michael Smith, Michael Chiklis, Jamie Chung, and Virginia Madsen brought industry-wide attention, many awards, a place on the Out 100, and a near-perfect Rotten Tomatoes score. Also, I personally think it's one of the best LGBT films ever made. Yen Tan, thank you so much for joining me here on The Outcast. Thanks for having me, David. <laughs> See, I think we should disclose right now that we're really good friends and we talk a lot. And we had a conversation before this started like, okay, so what can't I talk about? And you've been very evasive. So I told you like, yes, I also edit the show. So if there's ever something that's just like horrible, you I, we can just cut it out. Like, right. Wow. But, but I'll, uh, let it, yeah, I'll leave in a much, lot of, yeah. I promise. Not really. I'm crossing <laughs> my fingers. But anyway, um, why don't we start from the beginning? Like you... Uh, were born and grew up in Malaysia. Yes, I was born and raised in Malaysia. I was born in Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital of um, of Malaysia. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, who need like a film reference to actually um, materialize where Malaysia is, if anyone has seen um, what is the name? Was the Mission of Impossible, the... right? Where he, no, it's not Mission on... Impossible. It's the Catherine Zeta Jones and Sean Conner. Oh, Entrapment. Movie. That, Entrapment. That's John Amiel movie. That's a good what? movie, actually. The finale was uh, set in the Twin Towers. Yeah, and that is in Kuala Lumpur. Doesn't doesn't Vin Diesel like? Isn't one of the skyscrapers? Doesn't he like drive a car from one skyscraper to the other in one of the Fast and the Furious movies? Isn't that Kuala Lumpur? Is that or somewhere else? I don't know. I never. I have never seen any of those films. I haven't even seen Entrapment. So I have. You haven't seen Entrapment. It's actually. It's actually a good movie. Um, I mean, you know, you know, there's a huge age difference between you know Sean Connery and and Catherine Zeta Jones, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a what? fun. Is that is that problematic by any chance? <laughs> Should we start talking about wow, age different okay, relationships like, like immediately? Um, uh, whoa, okay, I am off. <laughs> I am leaving this interview. <laughs> Oh, no one's going to know what we're talking about, but they will if they actually listen to the entire <laughs> podcast. Anyway, let's, let's, let, we're just taking this a step at a time. Um, so you went to college in Iowa then, which is a uh, huge yes. culture shift, I'm sure. Right. So I, you know, I did my first two years in Malaysia, right? I went to, a, I went to one of these um, community colleges in Penang, which is like in the northern part of um, Malaysia, the peninsula. And the funny thing was that when I was going to the community college there, there was a movie that was being shot there at the community college. And it was John Borman's Beyond Rangoon. And that oh, was no. my very first I... celebrity encounter because I, I actually went up to Patricia Arquette and got her autograph. Um, that's, that's actually... That I completely forgot that that was the case, that, that John Borman and, and his film Beyond Rangoon was like one of your first, you know industry kind of film experience film production experiences yeah it was kind of mind-blowing that that was happening like literally in my in my you know what felt like my front door at that time because hollywood felt like such a far away place also you know and 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 also on top of that 
um, there was no sort of arts program in Malaysia. It was never part of our education or curriculum to, um, you know, there was no alternative. It was just pretty much like business and science and math. And if you are not good or like any of them, then you're kind of like shit out of luck. So this experience kind of was the impetus for you to look for a uh, uh, university in America? Uh, yes, I would say so. I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, like I, I, I came from a family where my, my parents were academics. So they, they wanted, they wanted their kids to have a good education. Right. And so, you know, my sister came to the States first and, she went to the University of Idaho and she studied uh, economics and she got her master's before she came back to Malaysia. And then so by the time it was my turn, it was kind of like, OK, what is um, what is my what should I be doing? You know, right. um, and also, um, luckily, I also have parents who are open minded enough that they recognize that I'm just totally terrible at math and science <laughs> and so forth. Breaking stereotypes every day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they realized that, you know, I was always like leaning into uh, arts and I like I like media. I like film, TV and all that kind of stuff. Short of recognizing I'm gay. Right. Uh, but, well, you know, it's like, you know, they're 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 they're, they're cousins, if not siblings. Right. Right. Exactly. Um <laughs> So, you know, the whole thing was kind of like, you know, like maybe you should uh, try to get into writing, right? Like writing in a way where you can actually make money, which means you can be a journalist, you can be, um, get into advertising, which is something they were aware of at that time. And I was like, that was when I realized there was such a thing as advertising copywriting. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't know that world at all. So I just sort of like took some intro classes in the community college and I was like, okay, I think I have a knack for this. And then, so I went to Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, to the school of journalism. And I was uh, a major in advertising. Um, also random trivia, John August went to Drake. Oh, did he? Yes. John, John August, for everybody who doesn't know, is a very uh, acclaimed and, and successful uh, writer who's also gay and has a yeah. wonderful podcast called Script Notes, which which I've been listening to forever. Yes. And apparently, I think, I want to say Jeremy Piven studied theater in at Drake as well. Wow. There's not I a think. lot of sushi in, uh, in Des Moines, I don't think. What That's is, a very inside oh, baseball right. reference. Yeah, I don't think another, anybody got that reference. I don't. Like, yeah, we should you'll have to Google to, Jeremy should, Piven and sushi. So you know, yeah, we we have to uh, sort of don't drift into that too much in, <laughs> inside a space ball. It's all my fault. <laughs> no, everyone can blame me for the inappropriateness. Um, but you did not when you came to Drake. When you came to Des Moines, you you didn't know English, or did you know English? You didn't know English. I well, knew I English, think. but you know, it was on a very sort of. Um, one hour a day sort of basis that I only started learning at the age of 12, I think, when right. schools, we had English classes and it only started around that time. And so, I mean, I, the, again, like my parents being academics, like they make us read a lot of books, including English books. So I felt right. like I was, I, I was, I learned grammar pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but my spoken English was like, you know, a disaster, you know, because I think, I think on top of like the English that we learn in Malaysia is also the English English, and it's right. not it's, the it's American UK, English. It's UK. Right. It's proper it's UK. English. It's not. It's not exactly. conversational American, which is so which it's is like, significantly different. So it's like favorite and color with a a U, right? And co- um, yes, labor with a U. <laughs> yeah, 
And yeah. so, so that was another sort of like learning curve, right? Coming to America and learn, trying to figure out accents and also trying to learn all these sort of like lingos, American lingo. Even though I was like watching a lot of American films up to that point, it was still kind of like a learning curve to sort of like try to be able to speak it well enough so that I was uh, passing, I guess. <laughs> you told me that, uh, you know, well, I should just ask you, who were the, the filmmakers that really, who were not American, who really changed the way you looked at cinema? I know one in particular that you, you're a huge fan of. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> uh, See, this is tough to do with someone like who's a really close friend because I know the answers to these things, but I want you right. to tell me what the answers right. are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking of Wong Kar Wai is the one that I'm thinking of. Well, Wong Kar Wai is actually later in the game. The weird thing is that, okay, so uh, there's something to sort of like, uh, to, to sort of uh, break down a bit in terms of how, how cinema, what's the cinema culture in Malaysia, right? And so, you know, we were essentially getting films from all over the world. We were getting a lot of films mm. from Asia. We we're also getting a lot of films from America, right? And there was always this sort of um, mm -hmm. inferiority complex when it comes to Asian or native films where they were deemed to have less production quality than American films. Like back in those days, it was like night and day, right? Because, I mean, it was like very obvious when you watch mm -hmm. like something that was coming from Asia, it was like not sync sound and it always sounded kind of terrible. And the image quality was also kind of like not as, doesn't feel as slick and lush as the American counterparts. So I think generally speaking, we always looked at films as like, oh, we would rather watch like an American movie than anything else, right? So it was just, it just was just perceived as better quality, Cause right? It's just, cause and it's just so slicker you can and, and, sort of and, go from that there to this sense of like right. Western su superiority and all that kind of stuff. And that's all part of it too, right? Like, so for me, it was kind of like Spielberg was like mm -hmm. the, the iconic one for me growing up, you know, because I was like, oh my gosh, Radio's a, Radio's a Lost Ark and then E.T. and all these films that came out in that era. And I was just like, who is this man? And it, it just became like Spielberg and Amblin sort of became a brand for me where anything that was like, had uh -huh. his name on it, I was gonna, I was just gonna see, watch, even if he was just an EP, right? So I, I totally was like a huge, you know, Spielberg sort of Amblin nerd mm -hmm. in those days. And I just thought those were the films I was gravitating towards. And then, so from there, it's sort of my sort of cinema sort of like diet expanded a bit and I started watching more American films. And it wasn't until I saw Thelma and Louise when I was 16 that I was like, this was a landmark for me. Like watching that movie in, in theaters, I was like, that was like a spiritual quality to that, that viewing experience that has never happened before. And really, and I was like, oh my gosh, what is, what is this whole thing about? What, what does it may, mean to be a director? And so I sort of, really looked into Ridley Scott's career and sort of studied his films. And then that's when it really materialized for me that that this is something I was into, you know, that I was into this idea of making movies. Right. Wong Kar Wai only came up like after that, after Emma and Louise, because, you know, he was, Wong Kar Wai was very much like, like back in the day when his earlier films came out, we didn't, like nobody really took them seriously because they were just viewed as like art house, you know, artsy, fartsy, like, Chinese films with huge stars, but it's like it was not for everyone, you know. And so there was always this sense of like thinking that 
they're not, you know, they were not meant for me. And it wasn't until I saw Chunking Express that I was like, oh my gosh, this is kind of amazing. Even though everyone in Malaysia looked at it as, as was like, they just looked at it as was like, this was like not a movie, you know, in a conventional sense. But that got international acclaim. Chunking Express was a huge, like, I mean, I know that, I don't, I, I mean, I don't have his career trajectory in front of me, but I know that Chunking Express brought him to the attention. It was mm-hmm. either Cannes or Venice or something. It was like there was the Europeans like suddenly took mm-hmm. note of him around that time. Yeah, and I think absolutely. it was, I think it was that movie, wasn't it? Or, or it was a movie around that. It was, it was before in the mood for love for sure. He was already, oh, yeah, for a, sure. A, I mean, Chunky Express kind of sort of put him in a different arena because Tarantino was a huge vocal yes. fan of that movie. And he right? got, he got the film released in America. Right. I know that he had that little uh, production company, Rolling yeah. Thunder that, right. that, uh, Picked up these kind of little little tiny movies, and and Chunking Express was the kind of the notable release that he got here. He, he did it through Miramax, which he was mm-hmm. you know working with that whole time. Right. Um, but so like it's it's funny that you talk about Thelma and Louise like that because it does have a spiritual quality. I remember seeing it. Um, I, I was I'm, I'm like three years older than you, so I saw it like when I was maybe nineteen. I mean, what about that film? really spoke to you was it was it kind of the the female empowerment story or was it just because it's very lush and slick visually mm-hmm. but like all ridley scott movies are like what was it about that film that really spoke to you so another context about that movie all films that come to malaysia are censored right the films that we watch in theaters are heavily censored and mm-hmm. the censorship is like very finicky meaning we cannot see any sort of science of affection even if two characters would just like kiss each other on the lips very quickly that is cut out so thelma and louise obviously had a lot of things that was censored and the version i saw was actually didn't really have a rape scene in it it was just kind of like you just sort of connected the dots while watching it um, and so a lot of the F-bombs will also drop in the version I saw at that time. But I think ultimately, you know, we were used to watching cen- censored films and we just learned to sort of connect the dots over time. And with Thelma and Louise, I think it hit a nerve because there was a sense of, I mean, that was an empowerment thing, but there's also this sense of like characters being oppressed for a really long time and then they have to rise above the oppression. And it, to me, it ended with transcending the oppression because they can't change it Mm -hmm. you know transcending it with death right and i think that was just very sort of being a gen x nirvana listening person that was very vivid to me like it was just like oh this is like i've never watched an ending like that and felt elated even though it was a sad ending it's funny you know the way that you describe it it almost sounds like you viewed it almost as a queer movie right right probably even though I was deeply in the closet and didn't even look, see myself as a queer person, yeah. At sixteen, really, you didn't you yeah. didn't have an inclination. I mean, I had an inclination, but I still thought that there was like a part of the adolescent confusion, and I so I thought there was still time to address it. <laughs> oh, I, I I very much identify with that. I was very similar. It must have been really amazing to come here. And even if it's just on video, watch these movies in in their non-censored ways. Like, what movies especially jumped out at you? Like, um, I can't imagine what Fatal Attraction looked like, for example. Well, like, yeah, going Fatal back Attraction to like this, was the very, 80s. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, you know, we also have a whole bootleg um, scene oh, yeah, because yeah. of that. And, and we were always getting, like, the subpar, uncensored video qualities of these films. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think over time, it was still, like, this sense of... Um, 
you know, when we watch the bootleg copies of films and then we sort of see how they were intended and it was kind of like, oh, it just gave me a sense of America was freer mm-hmm. <laughs> in, well, in all sense, yeah. right? And so yeah. you wanted that, you wanted that freedom and, and probably I'm imagining your queerness kind of informed that as well. You wanted a place right. where Even you could like it was grow. No. But it wasn't not obviously not articulated that clearly as a teenager. It was still in the in the confusion of like, is it queer freedom that I was seeking? Mm-hmm. You know, or I don't know. But I just at well, the, the same freedom time, to be yourself. You wanted to be yourself. You know. Well, I mean, you yeah, but to... freedom to. But that's the thing, right? It's like you don't really know what that means yet as a teenager. And so for me, it's kind of like okay, subconsciously the freedom was appealing to me, but mm-hmm. and I was gravitating towards it, but I didn't even really know what it meant yet at that mm-hmm. point so you go to drake when do you come out to yourself is it in college or oh. is it after i remember um it was it was in my senior year so i came here as a transfer so i only did my junior and my senior year at drake okay um i remember meeting out gay people right in my uh-huh. first semester and i was just completely terrified of them uh like my ra and my neighbor in my dorm were gay and out uh, and I was scared of them, Aww. like like it was like a disease I was going to catch if I spent too much time with them. The um, call is coming from inside the house, yeah. <laughs> I know, it was. It totally was. It was not. Yeah, it was like, it's an interesting parallel because I guess I could have gone, I could have gone into like closeted right wing path or i mean a lot uh, i mean a lot of people <laughs> like either do or or at least consider going there and it's it's a, a shame and unfortunate but it's you know it's like when you're trying to tamp down something that's part of you and you don't yeah. want it to be part of you there are only a few ways you can go you can go to total acceptance or you can go to total repression or mm-hmm. you know but there's not a lot of mid-range like because if it's there and it's bubbling up you got to handle it and right. you know it's you know, that's a lot to handle, especially as a teenager. You don't have the emotional shock absorbers yet uh, to to handle massive things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd even argue, like, even as an adult, you probably, you know, it's not something that <laughs> most adults can probably handle. So so you you spend a couple of years at Drake. Do you stay in the, the country uh, or do you go back? So I graduated. First? And then so when I graduated from Drake, you know, you have kind of the option of spending an extra year in the States by getting like a what was called like a practical training visa or something like that, mm-hmm. where you can get try to get a job in your field and then you can stay an extra year. Right. And so I, I, I got that visa and I was like thinking, I'm going to give the states a year and see what happens. Even though I was also telling myself, uh, because at that point I had already come out as a senior in college. I was like, there was no turning back. It was like the, yeah, it was a, it was a Thelma and Louise ending. Basically it was like, I should even, I would drive over, drive off the cliff. <laughs> the, the old Yen, the old closeted Yen drove off the cliff and the yeah. new gay Yen is ready to like, you know. Right, right, right. It's like, pick, I, I pick got up my, some I got cute Midwesterners gay... at a bar. <laughs> Bring me to your pickup truck. Come um, on. So, so yeah, so I stayed, I got a job in advertising and it was in Dallas. So I moved to Dallas and then after that, I just tried to stay, you know, and then you try to get like an H1 visa and all, and so forth and eventually landing with a green card. But that mm-hmm. was um that was essentially what happened to me. I just made a made a decision that I was not going back home. When did you move to Austin? 
I moved to Austin in 2011. Oh, wow. Is that late? Yeah. I thought you moved to Austin way before. You were in Dallas before then? Yeah, I was in Dallas all that time, you know. Oh. And, then, and then in Dallas, I was... Uh, I actually didn't know that. I got into the film scene in Dallas, which is like very much DIY. And this is when I, you know, met people like David Lowry and, and, and everyone else, you know. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of like we worked on each other's films and so forth. David Lowry, just so everybody knows, is is now kind of a, a big time director. He directed the Pete's Dragon remake. He directed, oh gosh, I don't have his stuff in front of me. What was the uh, Robert Ain't Redford Nobody's, movie? Ain't Body Saints. Ain't Body Saints. Ghost Story. Old Man with a Gun. Story, Old Man yeah. with a gun and, and the new one, uh, Green Knight. Uh, Green Knight. I'm sorry. Yeah. I almost said Green Inferno, but I'm like, no, that's an Eli Roth movie. That's a very different movie. You worked together on Pit Stop. You did. Yeah. You you co-wrote it. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, let's talk about Pit Stop for a moment. That was made mm -hmm. in 2013. And and again, this is after many 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 shorts. And another, actually, two features. You did two features. There was one feature in 2002 called Happy Birthday, which you have forbade me to watch. I said, like, because when I, just, just so everybody knows, when I do the outcast and I have a guest, I try to watch almost everything I possibly can by this person. Now, it's a little yeah. difficult with, like, a showrunner. Like, we had Josh Safran on last week, and there's, like, 200 hours of television. It's like, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but if it's if it's something like Cheryl Dunye or, or or any of these other filmmakers, I just try to watch all the movies I can. Like, you know, right. and, or, you know and, and you have, you literally forbade me from watching your first two movies. Now, I remember seeing Chow, which was in 2008, uh, right, um, right. and liking it. And it did it reasonably well on the festival circuit. It got released. Um, yeah. People admire it like. and like it. It's a very gorgeous movie, I remember. But literally, you told me not to watch it. So I want to ask you, <laughs> why are you telling me not to watch your movie? I think, yet? okay, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, uh, I, and I want to frame this in a very sort of uh, articulate way, which is... Um, you know, when you uh, when you when people when you know people are going to watch your own movies, it's almost like you're letting them look at look through your old photo albums again, right? And it's like you're kind of sure. like, "Oh my gosh, my childhood was kind of like not great and I look awkward most of the time." So all these <laughs> photos are just horrific to look at and people are like, "I want to look at your photo albums." So watching my old movies kind of feels that way. And also, okay, here's the thing, here's the sort of thing to sort of like break it down a little bit too, which is the conventional filmmaker, right? Like when they make their first film, they have like the right resources. Like for instance, let's say Paul Thomas Anderson, when he made Heart Aid, it was like a legitimate first film, right? Yeah, but there it had like an actual cast. There are tons of filmmakers that don't have that. I mean, Quentin right, Tarantino, right, no, totally, totally, for sure. Quentin but Tarantino I, is like basically like buried his first movie. <laughs> I forget which I don't even remember what it's called. It's something had to do with a birthday. It's like as a well. birthday party, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he like literally no one is allowed to see it. I know Stanley Kubrick when he made Fear and Desire uh, tried to buy the negative and destroy it or something yeah, like yeah. that. And it and you can get it now. It got out and and Kino Lorber has a Blu-ray and yeah, it's not good, but it's right. you know it's fucking Stanley Kubrick and it's like his first two or three movies were were. We're not, you know, whatever. And then he made, um, was it? Did he make? He made the killing before Paths of Glory. I don't even remember. But then he started like making these masterpieces, and it's like, mm -hmm. you know, amazing. Um, but you know, even with a low budget, I remember Chow being very lovely and tangible and tactile with mm -hmm. these really sensitive performances. And this is from several years ago, so I can't speak intelligently exactly to what it is or isn't or what I remember. But I remember mm -hmm. like being a very beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. 
maybe I don't talk about it anymore. I have not seen it for freaking forever, so I like have very like I don't remember a lot of it in some ways. But I me, mean, I mean, I would say I would say I think the intentions of making that film and even even Happy Birthday at that time was very sort of pure, right? That was something yeah. about yes, this idea that we were we were like making it for nothing and we were not getting paid for for it or any of that. So it was kind of like it was like there was a there was a lack of pretension there that was like very. I think that it's the only part that I would look at and be like, oh, that is kind of endearing, you know. But other than that, I don't really care about like <laughs> actually watching it. <laughs> uh, so, so hence, hence I discourage people from watching it if they tell me they're gonna watch some of stuff. <laughs> well, p- but Pit Stop is a different story. Pit Stop got you into Sundance. Pit Stop got you attention. Uh, of course, you were working with David Lowry. Um, I mean, who else were you working with? On you need that? to was- uh, you need to also um, give a shout out to Outfest because it went to the Outfest lab in oh yes 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 two thousand nine I want to say or oh, two thousand ten mm-hmm. I can't remember what year but mm-hmm. um but yeah it was like developed at the lab and um and then uh, and then I was like, able to sort of come back with it and rewrite it and then I brought David on board to sort of help me with some sections I was struggling with. Um, and finally make the film. It's a beautiful little movie about two men in Texas who uh, who are gay, and they're both going through their own things, and basically the whole movie is about how they basically find each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's a lovely, lovely movie, and it got you a significant amount of attention, um, and it, it ran around the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. What was it like to make that film? Pit Stop was actually a, a joy to make uh, because it was, uh, you know, that was still a, a quality of sort of like working with, a lot of people I already knew, you know, um, right. And so the vibe was pretty laid back and just it was easy, you know, in that in that we, you know, we were on schedule. It was not hard to make that film. Uh, and it was a sense of like everyone had a good time making it, you know. And so mm-hmm. I have very fond memories of of working on that movie, you know, and I think the stuff that came after premiering at Sundance and so forth and ultimately, you know, into this um the Spirit Award nomination for it. It was just, it was all completely unexpected, honestly. And so, so in that sense, um, yeah, I wish, I wish every film I make was like Pit Stop, I would say. <laughs> what was it like getting the Spirit Award nomination though? Because that's a uh, big deal. Yeah. It was also very shocking. Uh, even though I, I remember having a very significant moment of like realizing the pot- like potential monster I could have turned into. Um, what? What? How? I remember. I remember having lunch with a friend when the announcements were made, and I was suddenly getting all these text messages. And one of my <laughs> friends call. I was like, one on oh, my producer call, and I picked up the phone, and he was like, "Oh my gosh, we got nominated!" And I was like, "How many?" <laughs> <laughs> but that's not. I mean, okay. <laughs> it was just so everyone knows. It was the John Cassavetes Award, which is a yeah. really, really awesome award because basically it's only awarded to films that are made for under, I think $500,000. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's basically saying like you did this for almost nothing and it's amazing and we love you. Um, and, but it got nominated for a, bu- and it won a bunch of other awards. It won, uh, your two leads won best actor at Outfest in right. 2013. Uh, it won, I mean, it won Nashville. It won in Miami. It won in Dallas. Uh, it was nominated uh, in South by Southwest. Um, so this is a pretty significant splash. Like, did you, yeah. how How did you, like, you know, how did the industry kind of like, kind of reach out to you after this? Because uh, I think, you know, 20, 2013, 2014 was still very much like we were just getting 
closer to this whole conversation about underrepresentation, you know, right. meaning right. meaning in those years, I remember those years as gay and Asian and both as being very much frowned upon by the larger industry. Meaning, meaning if you're a gay Asian director and you make a queer film, it's almost like that's nothing we can do for you. You know, I remember mm-hmm. I remember taking a meeting with an agent at that time and she was just like, is this just all you're planning to make? Meaning, is this uh, all you can do? Yeah, is this all LGBTQ you are? films. Is this all you're interested in making? And I was yeah. like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And she was like, because if you are, you don't need representation. Was what she was trying to tell me. Right. And so, so I felt like at that time it was. I mean, honestly, it was fairly negative to the point where I was just kind of like, even up to the point when I went to the Spirits Awards, I just remember right after that, I just felt like a total piece of shit. Like, like just in that. There was there was there was nothing in this world for me, you That's know. Just, and I have to like go back to Texas, and if I want to make more films, I have to do it in the same terms. In other words, it's just it's it pains me as your friend and as uh, someone who loves films and queer films to hear that you've made this really good movie for very little money. It got you know kind of international attention, uh, it, it, Sundance Film Festival, all of these awards, and you ended up feeling like a piece of shit. And that's just tragic because, I mean, you made it through. I mean, you're still working. You you made, and I want to talk about 1985 because I think it's an, a genuine masterpiece. Um, but how many filmmakers don't get to the point where they can actually do more stuff? How many filmmakers are so put off by that no. that they that and have been so like? What films are we not seeing? that we should have seen. Yeah, for sure. And I would say, you know, in, especially in the context of where we're having this conversation on Outcast, but, you know, and I think you and I have talked about this quite a bit, you know, in terms of like, just not, not just being Asian, but just like being gay in general, like all the gay, the gay and lesbian directors in from the heyday in the nineties who made all their Sundance splashes and then yeah. ended up not really making anything after that. That's like yeah. a whole there's a lot, lost there's a lot generation. Of yeah. A lot generation of people who just never really had a second chance, you know? Right. It's tough. It's you know because there there are filmmakers who are given chance after chance, and mm-hmm. largely they're straight and white and right. male. And right. and <laughs> that's and but if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, or if you're LGBTQ, it's you you don't get a second or third chance. Sometimes you don't even get a chance. Like you know because you came off of this, and your next film was five years later, and it was another film that you put together basically on a very low budget and, mm-hmm. and w- with the people that you knew, this was not like 1985 was not financed by some, by like focus or, or, you know, no, Sony no, pictures no. classics or something. This is like, you put this together. You made, you made a short, um, uh, which I, I think it's on Vimeo, right? You can watch the, the Vimeo, 1985 yeah. short, yeah. which is very, very, very different by the way, than the film, like completely different. Um, but you made this short and then tell me about how the film of 1985 started to come about. Um, so it actually, I mean, interestingly, I mean, now that I'm sort of like connecting the dots, but I think it came about having, um, just the conception of the short film sort of came off like feeling, feeling down in the dumps after the spirit awards and this sense of like, uh, dejection, I guess, you know, and it was Mm -hmm. just kind of like, I was just kind of like, oh my gosh, this really sucks. And I feel like I'm starting over again. And and then I thought about, I thought about, okay, what, what is there? Is there something else I want to make? You know, and I was just thinking telling a short film, telling a short story in a short film is kind of like the sort of like 
in some ways, the easiest way to sort of just make something again, you know, without mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. having to look for a lot of money and stuff. And so, so you know, I think the the, the and I've talked about the genesis of 1985 in many interviews for the for the film itself. But you know, the the short version is that, you know, I had a, I had a very short job uh, after I graduated from college where I was interacting with a lot of um, gay men who were living with HIV and AIDS, and I just remember all the stories I heard from them, and I was just like, trying to piece it together. Uh, later on and it was kind of like trying to sort of like not think about my low point and 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 changing the direction to thinking about their low points right and trying to and it was like a very sort of subconscious way of trying to just sort of like put my shit aside and look at what they went through and getting a sense of like uh what what how did they overcome it if they even overcame it at all you know and i just start start unpacking a lot of things about those conversations that i felt like were unanswered you know and there was a lot of there was a lot of stories that kind of didn't end well in the sense that you know like family members never knew about their illness or their sexuality and all that kind of stuff and and it just sort of made me think about like what does it mean when you don't tell anyone and you still have to live with whatever it is you know what the 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 struggles and the illness and so forth and i so i made a short film and then and then from there i felt like there was more to unpack and i i wrote the feature and made that too want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization, and especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. I just love this film so much and i know you hate being complimented you you yell at me every time i do you yes you do (laughs) you yell at me every time but i genuinely feel like this is one of the best gay movies certainly i've ever seen and i've seen an awful lot of gay movies i've been been watching gay movies for like a long time um this is about uh cory michael smith plays a man a young man uh you know he's 22 23 or something and he comes home to see his family uh he has a little brother uh, in Austin in 1985. And what his family does not know is that he is gay. His boyfriend died of AIDS two or three months before Christmas. And he has a Kaposi sarcoma lesion on, I think his leg or his chest. Mm-hmm. And, um, he's not telling anybody. He's not telling them. And he knows it's probably his last visit home. They don't. Um, it's shot on 16 millimeter film in black and white. It, it, is it reversal film? I don't, I actually, no, don't it, know wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, reversal, no. it was black and no. white negative, but it was gorgeous, like very high contrast, black and white. It looks very much like a, an independent movie from 1985, which is really, really, really fascinating. Um, and I just cannot say enough wonderful things about this film. You know, it sounds like the way that I describe it, it sounds like it's medicine. It sounds like it's a, a bummer. It's not. It's just this beautiful film 
that is so lovely and the performances are so amazing and beautiful. It's, it's very much like lightning in a bottle. You see very, very few independent films, this gorgeous and, and, and it got, what, what is it like a 98 on Rotten Tomatoes or something? It's something insane. Like, like movies don't get like scores like this on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like, it's, it's near a hundred. It's like just shy of a hundred. And I know you, but not, you're, but you're not a hundred. I, I knew, God okay, damn it. Jesus Christ. I knew you were going to do this. I like, <laughs> it's like, you got like 7,000 great reviews and then like one didn't like it. One asshole doesn't like this film. I don't know how you don't like this film, but. Apparently, some. Dickhead I mean, everyone's did. entitled to their opinions. It's fine. Well, I can call him a dickhead. I had nothing to do with this movie. I think that whoever that is, that one guy is a total jerk. But whatever. Um, and you can see it actually now. It's on Outfest now, which is Outfest like uh, little uh, the, the streaming service. Um, and and you can rent it and, and stuff like that. Um, but w- w- how much did this cost? And how long did it take you to make? And all that all that other indie film stuff. I, I don't think I can still talk about the budget, honestly, I want to say. But, I mean, it's definitely, like, it was just... It, it was tiny. It was tiny. It was just a little bit more than Pit Stop, honestly, you know, which means it's very low. Right. Like, it's 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 okay in, our, in Texas standards, but right, in right, LA right. standards, it's like... You know, going to going going to the Dollar General and buying two sprites or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, you, but but it's a testament. It's a testament to your script that you got name actors like like Corey Michael Smith, who was on Gotham, and it's yeah. kind of is kind of a thing. He still is a thing. Um, Michael Chiklis, who won how many Emmys did the guy win for The Shield? I mean, it's like that is a great Gosh. actor. Lots. Yeah. I mean, he was. I mean, he. I. I think he. He won, right? I th- I'm, I'm mm-hmm. pretty yeah, sure he won. He definitely won. In, uh, in the, uh, and Virginia Madsen, who everyone has seen from everything from Sideways to Dune, mm-hmm. and and he, she's been around forever. Jamie Chung, who was uh, really kind of up and coming. Now she's mm-hmm. kind of more established. But you have these people that like are kind of you know name talent coming to Texas to shoot this movie that was shot for like you know. $2. I mean, you know, that's a script that is notable. I mean, you know, to get that kind of attention. Right. I mean, yeah, totally. I think in hindsight, it was kind of miraculous that we pulled off the way we did, you know, even though I would say, I, I think, I think there was a sense of like the actors not realizing how small it was until they showed up. <laughs> and then it was kind of like, Oh, They're like, where's shit. my trailer? Oh like... no. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a lawn chair. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is someone's backyard that we're making a movie in. Um, and so, I don't know. I mean, I think I think ultimately it all worked itself out and stuff, you know. But, like, honestly, it was just still, like, there's this thing that happens, which is, you know, when you have a lot of more established actors who's used to bigger sets and they come to your fucking, you know, like, living room, <laughs> shitty couch setting and... It's it's jarring, you know. I'm I'm trying to look at it from their point of view, and it's like I'm sure they're like, oh my gosh, what did we sign on? And I think I think there was a lot of sort of sense of like assuring them that we are legitimately making a movie and that we are actually meeting our days and meeting our schedules and all that kind of stuff. But it was a fight to earn that confidence, right? Because I think yes, they responded to the script, but then showing up and then sort of watching how bare bones we were was kind of like a shock to the system, and then they sort of have to quickly realize okay this is like i think they know what they're doing sort of thing you know but i wouldn't i wouldn't want to go through that again because i think that's just 
it's just it just doesn't make a good environment for everyone in well, a way. Right, you know? right. I mean, yeah. even if it is a love fest on the set or whatever, you. I mean, it's it's that's hard. I mean, like mm-hmm. making a movie is, you know, is really hard. And it's yeah. a lot of 12, 14, 16, 18 hour days yeah. where you're like just, you know, on the whole time. And I mean, how many days did the, the 1985 shoot? I think it was like 22, 23 days. See, that's a that's a healthy schedule. And it was like a six-day week schedule, yeah. Six-day weeks. That's You see, yeah, that's just... That's hard. That's really hard. And, you know, if you're dealing with people who've been on, like, gigantic movies, like, you know, Virginia Madsen, I mean, Dune, you don't get a much bigger movie than Dune. Dune was a while ago, but, I mean, mm-hmm. certainly, like, she's been on large movies. Yeah. Uh, Michael Chiklis, like, huge movies, like, shows... All this stuff, uh, Corey Michael Smith. I mean, that Gotham is not a mm-hmm. low budget show, um, but they must have really like believed in your vision in order to kind of do this. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, but I think again, I think the 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 faith was sort of <laughs> it was like an ascent. I would say, right? Like it started from a point of like, what the fuck? This is is this. <laughs> this guy a total fucking hack to like oh okay i think i'm getting the drift you know well, one, imagines, one imagines they watched pit stop before they they came on set i mean you honestly, did have honestly i i mean i think some of them <laughs> did but i think some i think i want to say most of them didn't hey look i get it i totally get it i'm not i'm not saying that they didn't do their homework i'm just saying that they're all busy people they work on other films they work on bigger films you know it's like Yen Tan has a project that I'm working on versus, I don't know, like David or Russell wants me on board on something, right? Am right, I going right, to watch right. American Hustle or am I going to watch Pit Stop? I'm fucking right. watching Pit Stop. I mean, right. I'm wa- fucking watching American Hustle, <laughs> not watching Pit Stop. Like, I, I get it. I totally get it. There's, so, but there's, so, room, there's room for both, though. I mean, it's like, you know, you're hilarious because, like, you know, you have this record of achievement. And certainly this last film, I, I cannot say enough wonderful things about uh, I've I've introduced it to so many people. Um, like you know, they, they ask like, "What should I watch?" I'm just like, "You need to watch this movie, 1985, especially if they're gay, uh, because there's a whole generation of gay men, especially uh, who are under maybe you know 35 or 40, who they know that AIDS happened. Mm-hmm. They know that a lot of people died. I don't think a lot of people under that age really understand what it was like. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I'm not pretending that I'm, I know either because I came out in t- like 90, like two, I think 92, mm-hmm. 93, you know, we were so paranoid about condoms. Uh, not a lot of people our age that I knew uh, mm-hmm. converted, but these men in the eighties and the early nineties saw half Three quarters, all their friends die. They saw their lovers die. They saw, you know, their entire social circles die. Mm-hmm. And they saw they saw a government that largely up until, you know, Bill Clinton in 92 was more or less completely uninterested in helping or even acknowledging what was happening. Uh, and your film speaks to that entire period in a way that I have seen very few films. I can only think of a few like that were like buddies, the, the Bresson movie and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, BPM. If people have, mm-hmm. if, 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 if people haven't seen BPM, it's a French film. It's about Paris and act up and it's absolutely stunning. But 1985 is certainly up there in that, in that echelon of 
movies that I think are, are, you know, should be compulsory for gay men to like, you know, this is, by the way, this is where we came from and it wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. And, and it's amazing that you managed to get that kind of a, a vibe, a, a, this tangible vibe of the period, like not having lived through it yourself. Right, right. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, you know, I mean, like, you know, Hutch, who's uh, my, you know, producer and cinematographer and my co-editor on it and worked on the story with me. But the the film sort of came from a very sort of uh, was working through a lot of pain. I think for, 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 for me, I was definitely working through a lot of sort of working from a dark place when I was uh, when I was like writing the script and, and putting the film together and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I think that was ultimately the way I was uh, channeling all the the darkness and sadness I was experiencing myself into into the the work itself, you know. And I and I think and and that was just a sense of like happenstance that it sort of overlapped, you know, with like the actual sort of like the more sort of like visceral, more painful experience that the generation of gay men went through, and and maybe it sort of overlapped in that way. But even though I I also want to be really sensitive in not saying that whatever darkness and pain I was going through is like comparable to what they no, were doing, you know, because I, I, it's good that you say that. I don't get that sense that yeah. you're, you're saying like, Oh yeah, I know what it's like. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Cause I still don't, I still don't know what it's like. Honestly, well, you, I don't you know, think you, so. I don't think we can, I, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, you hear the stories. It's so unbelievably <laughs> like, like I, I can't wrap my head around how, how traumatic it must have mm-hmm. been for that generation of gay men. Um, but you, you captured it, and I think everyone should see this one. You were also doing a lot of graphic design. Um, you were kind of known for this uh, as well, like doing posters, uh, uh, title designs for a, like so many movies. What were some of your favorites to work on? Uh, oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Because um, you worked on it. I mean, this is... You're you're yeah, an acclaimed I mean, award-winning graphic designer on top of all of this. So well, it's I like, think I think I had to do that honestly. You know, I mean, in a sense, not not say I had to do that. I was always into that stuff. You know, because I did come from the world of advertising, and so art direction and graphic design stuff is always something that was appealing to me. So I just somehow lucked out, and I was able to figure out a way to work in film and do design right and i think i think i was definitely feeling a um a need for especially in the independent film and documentary world um there's a need for you know like key art design and stuff and i was able to fill that void um i mean i don't know like i i I generally enjoy everything i work on because i i think it's just a way to sort of experience other people's vision and and i think i think key art design particularly is a very sort of interesting way to sort of understand the filmmaker's point of view and just trying to come up an interpretation of it that still feels like I'm honoring their vision and not working against it, you know? Right. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I still enjoyed it to this day. And, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm very grateful that I could be doing that because I think, you know, like independent filmmaking as, as it is for a lot of people, is not a sustainable career. Really? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, we can't we can't pay our bills just making independent films, you know, unless you like cross over and you start doing, you know, bigger films or you start directing television. Well, that's television. the whole. I mean, but that's yeah. what you're on the precipice of doing, and I know that we can't talk about the the, the several projects that you have coming up. But it's like yeah. I know that you had a film that was going to go 
Mm -hmm. uh, but COVID kind of nuked it because basically you had a budget of, you know, like uh, uh, certainly much more than you've ever had before, but not not a very large budget. Uh, But then they added like 30 or 40% for COVID costs. And suddenly it can't get, like you can't do it for that money. Right, right. And that must have, I mean, that must have been, I mean, and it's still kind of what on the periphery. You like you may it's make on the it periphery, and we we might be in a position of you know like making it like later on, you know, and stuff. Um, but but yeah, it's still it's still out there. You know, it's just a matter of like finding the right time to um, get it off the ground. And you and you you're you're developing a series. You're developing several features, um, none of which we can talk about uh, on, right, on right, the air, which right. is unfortunate <laughs> because some yeah, like, because one- also also as we learn, you know, I think it's like really funny that like there's this sort of um, industry sort of need and urgency to put out press releases for anything that's like being developed because the reality is that most of those films never get made or most of those (laughs) projects never get made and i'm also very sort of real you know i'm I'm really pragmatic in that way when i know that even though you're saying that oh yeah there's a bunch of projects it's like for all you know none of them could get made too well it's true but i mean these are these (laughs) but these also aren't projects that you're just doing yourself like these are these are projects with Production companies, production entities, producers, name people right. who Which all could also have, still mean they. Well, of course, of course. I mean, any, like anything can happen, or anything cannot happen in this in this in this business. But it's like right. you know, there's there's stuff coming, and uh, I certainly can't wait to see your next film. Um, I do want to talk about uh, how it is difficult to have mm-hmm. a relationship and 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 manage a relationship while uh-huh. you work as much as you do. Uh, yeah. You've been married or or with the same guy for over twenty years. I mean, marriage since it was legal, which is what twenty fourteen, I want to mm. say. But you know, we have been together for like you know longer than that. So it's been like 20 Well, and apparently years. I met yeah. him when I first met you in 2002. I don't remember right. meeting at, him. At, I remember meeting right. you. Yeah. When did you get together with Jerry? Uh, 98. My God. So how yeah. do you, like, okay, so how, how do you make it work? I mean, you know, it's like working as much as you do. I mean, I think, I, I think it's a matter of, you know, I mean, that was definitely like, uh, it was a learning curve, you know, just like most relationships. But I think I think he respects that I have to do my thing. And when it's time for me to go off and do my thing, then that's just... That's, that's so great. Him, him, him having his own time. And then, you know, we have, we've always had dogs also. So he would, you know, take care of the dog when I'm gone and so forth. And, and, and not to say that it's all like smooth sailing, you know, because I think... Well, I no think, relationship you know, is filmmaking is stressful and filmmaking does sort of make us more neurotic like it or not and i definitely can see a version of myself that's a lot more unbearable when i'm making movies (laughs) Uh, so kudos kudos to him for being able or figuring out how to like put up with it and going back to what we were talking about in the first like two minutes of the podcast, there is an age difference between you guys. Right, and, right. And speaking as someone, <laughs> speaking as someone who's like, I mean, because I'm in a relationship with with a reasonable age difference as well. Yeah. I mean, Craig is Craig is younger than me, right. um, and you are younger than your husband. Right. Um, you know, did you did you face any kind of you know backlash like you know when you kind of like. Went uh, out? Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, since we're ta- we're like talking about this right now, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was it was we don't have to. It, w- it was kind of shitty for a while. I would have to say, just in the sense that I feel like I'm constantly coming out from another closet, right? So I came out from the big closet of being gay, and then I came out. I have to come out, figure out how to come out from the closet of being in an intergenerational relationship, and 
Because I, I got so much shit for it. Like in the early days, I just remember when we were starting to date and then, you know, we were meeting each other's friends and there's always this sense of like, I was the gold digger or he was like, what's the term for uh, chicken something? <laughs> chicken, chicken hawk. <laughs> Chicken hawk, chicken hawk versus go digger. Well, you were you were twenty two. You were twenty two when you met him, right, yeah, or something like that. Right. Yes. And he yes. was he was significant. He was older than us now. Like yeah, you know. Right, so right. If, you know. You know. And plus, there's also the race thing because you are an interracial mm-hmm. couple, and he's white, and you are Asian, and you know right. that plays into a lot of other stereotypes that I'm sure you have for to sure, like, for deal sure. with. Yeah. No. Totally. I mean, I de- I definitely came from a time where gay Asian was not a. Um, was not thought about it in a positive way. <laughs> Wait, I, I don't think it's still thought about in a positive way. I was going to say, circles, I was like, you know, the, like, sorry, it hasn't wh- changed. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, like, you know, because I always viewed those relationships, like, because I've, I've known a few of them and largely, like, a lot of them have not been what I would consider healthy. But then you mm-hmm. and, and others that I've met, uh, are in these age divergent relationships and you have this healthy relationship you have you've made it work i mean certainly like 22 years or whatever it is like uh i mean it's more right and it's like god it's i always like lose track of it 23 or 24 i mean well, it's like you know certainly like this is not a flash you're doing something right you know you obviously respect each other and you've kind of proved any of the naysayers completely wrong uh yeah i would i mean yeah in a way you know just because i think i think it's a there's there's always like the the irony of um you know a lot of the the friends who sort of judged us and they were sort of dating correctly meaning they were with someone of the same age right um most of their relationships or marriages fought, fell apart so i think that's <laughs> i mean this is the first time i'm being bitchy about it i think i deserve to be a bitchy about it but yeah, i think, I think you're allowed you're allowed <laughs> you're, allowed, you're allowed you're allowed that. that little thing you know it's like that's <laughs> yeah. like guess what Guess who's still um, together? But you know, I mean, I mean, it's it it's it's you know, like 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 any relationship, whether it's intergenerational or not, or interracial or not. I think I think that's always like kinks to work through, you know. And I of think course. generally, relationships, uh, marriages are hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and the you know, you've also made the decision not to move to L.A. or New York. Mm-hmm. You're still in Texas. You're still in right. Austin. You're still making movies from there. How how difficult is it to navigate the industry uh, in Texas from from not California, from not L.A.? Yeah. I mean, again, society, moving is like a never say never thing. And, you know, I honestly don't know where things are going to take me and so forth. And I'm open I've been to trying, whatever I've been trying to convince is. you to move here for how long? Like, Yeah, I know. And I think, like, you know, yeah. I, I, definitely ha- I definitely have my own hangups about having to move and stuff. Because I genuinely do love living in Austin. Uh, and I like the film community here. And I genuinely feel I have a place here. And I feel like I'm you know, accepted and, and respected and so forth. Um, so I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there is an advantage of, of keeping that distance because I mean, I do come to LA pre COVID days, like almost, I make like two or three times of trips of a year. Right. And so having to be able to take all those meetings and then go back to my non-film world, I, 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 I I do like that, you know, Mm -hmm, I mean, not mm -hmm. to say that you cannot maintain that sort of distance living in LA, I definitely felt like it would be more challenging, right? It was more challenging, and also I was definitely still remain intimidated by LA in some ways. Okay, 
you know, that's valid. whether it's whether it's realistic I'm validating or not. your I mean, emotions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. You know. I don't think you should. I mean, you know, it's like I, I understand that it's intimidating, but I think mm-hmm. that you 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 don't you'd fit in perfect here. The water's warm, yeah. Yen. Okay. The water's warm. <laughs> Well, one of the things you and I have talked about a lot, actually, is that, you know, you you believe that there has to be kind of like a, a particular attitude to get things done in the film industry, which you, you say you can put on. You can actually, like, be yeah. that, that kind of assertive, more, I guess, extroverted kind of personality to right. kind of, like, be, quote, unquote, good in a room and kind of pitch stuff right, and be right. that. And, and certainly your track record uh, indicates this all over the place. You go into meetings and you, you've been making deals left and right. I mean, you know, and, and yes, you, you say that like it's a toss up whether or not it's actually going to get made, but you know, honestly, Mm -hmm. this, you know, one of the first steps, but do you feel like independent filmmakers have to kind of adopt a persona of kind of extroversion in order to really kind of get things done? Uh, I mean, I think so for sure. You know, I mean, like I, 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 I was, I was like, lucky to be sort of like developing projects over over the pandemic and i think you know there was one one project i was working on where i i I definitely had to work on my pitch persona you know my zoom pitch persona more in the sense that you know so like this sort of like this ridiculous notion of how even though you're the creator of something right you still have to be like an actor when you're pitching which I'm generally just terrified of the notion of that. That's why I'd have no desire to be in front of the camera. But it's like it's like then that's when you start getting very OCD about the the whatever whatever sort of facial things you're giving off, right? Because then I started realizing that I have this problem where people think I'm very like trouble or sad by default because. Uh, when I don't say anything for a while, when I'm just listening to someone, I I definitely have, um, you know, some people have uh, resting resting bitch face. I have resting <laughs> I have resting sad face. I think. <laughs> um, so most that's it's it's always like people would be like it's very common for people like even in in meetings I've taken where it's like what's wrong what's wrong are you something troubling you are you something happened something bad happened. And I'll be like, uh, no, I'm just, uh, I don't know, I'm just listening. Um, but, and I, I was like more hyper, more aware of it during these pitch practices. And I was basically told that I, I needed to smile a lot more, right? When I'm, when I'm oh, pitching. Oh, okay. And I have to be you've, a you've lot been, more You've been going animated. through a lot of pitch practices right. this, this year for, for various things, mostly the, the, the TV show, and but a couple of other things as well. So Right, yeah, no, totally. A bunch of, yeah. And it, it was just like this sort of awareness. You're kind of like, okay, like your, your persona is actually, um, can be an asset or a liability, right? In these things. It's like, regardless of what you have written, regardless of what is the material you're delivering, even though you're not like the face of this product, or work, you know, um, it matters. And I think, I think that part of it is something I still struggle with. And I still try to figure out what's the sort of, um, I don't know, what's the right attitude about it. And I think when I look to look at a lot of people who seem to do it so uh, effortlessly, and they do it so well, that's when I'm kind of like, I feel like, oh, my gosh, I still don't have that 
magic or the charisma that they seemingly to just exude so easily. And I, I, I don't know if I can ever capture that, I guess. I think you're too hard on yourself. I mean, certainly I think that like your track record would indicate that you have something that people are responding to. Yeah. But you still have to be that person in the room though. I think that that helps. And that's, you and that's practice. Like, it's practice right. for a lot of people. I mean, certainly it's mm-hmm. like, I, I would, I don't know if I could do that just off the bat. I'd have to practice I think you it. could. You do it. Well, like I'm much more of an extrovert than you are. Yeah, you like, are. Like, I know. Being an introvert. Okay, so basically, I love introverts. Introvert, introverts are my favorite people. You no, know, I think being introvert and being an Asian in Hollywood can be a liability. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I would say. <laughs> Sometimes in some rooms. Well, but you you managed to do it, and you managed to do it well. And certainly, like, I can't wait to see what you've got coming up next. I mean, and you know this. Thank you so much for coming, Yen, and I really appreciate you doing this. Yes. And if I can get anybody who's listening to this to watch 1985, I will because it's so great. It's lovely. It is legitimately one of the best gay movies I've ever seen. It's on Outfest now, right now. Um, it is fantastic. Yen Tan, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks, Outcast, Outfest, <laughs> and everyone. And this has been The Outcast presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Alan Konigsberg, Ismail El-Sharif, and David Kittredge. Special thanks to Damian Navarro, Daniel Crook, and the entire Outfest team. Music by West Warren Music Group. Mixed by Craig Lawrence Smith. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time.